dystopian fiction has been moved to current affairs. Hello and welcome to this episode of Dystopian Fiction Has Been Moved to Current Affairs. You're with uh, your host Marsha and your co-host Claire and this is our 12th episode where we're going to look at the movie Leave the World Behind. Um, Claire, do you want to give us a little synopsis? For those who haven't seen it, this is a film that's on on Netflix, came out in 2023, um, and it's based on a novel, but transparency, we have not read the novel. Uh, so if you have and you would like to defend it in some uh, way, then please do write to us and let us know. So the premise is basically that um, a, um, a family with um, a teenage son and a slightly younger daughter, I suppose, maybe early teen's daughter, decide that they're going to take a short break to uh, just outside the city in a a little hamlet. They've uh, rented a house um, and they're going to get away um, for a few days, sort of short uh, notice decision. But the first night that they are there in this uh, really very luxurious house, they get a a knock on the door and a man and his daughter in her early 20s, I suppose, uh, standing there in full evening dress. And basically it comes to pass that they are the owners of the house and because of a blackout in the city, they want to come and stay in their house, which the family is already staying in. Uh, So that's the sort of premise. But basically what we see is the unfolding of something that appears to be apocalyptic in some way, but without ever a very clear idea I suppose of what exactly is going on and so one of the things that I think is quite chilling about the the film is that lack of of knowledge of communication of any way of knowing what's going on in the outside world other than the little bits of information that they pick up yeah I mean you thought that this was it was pretty chilling as a film's game yeah I don't know I I think out of all the things I've seen (laughs) it's quite quite rattled me probably partly as a product of watching a so late at night maybe uh, I'm not sure I'm not necessarily sure if it was the story beats themselves that mm-hmm. were so sort of chilling for me potentially it was just the way that the movie was sort of put together I think especially with like the musical element like throughout the whole entire movie it was this sort of de- dissonant like sort of yeah pianos within yeah it was so eerie. like every single bit I was like what is that they're on the beach right now what is there to be eerie about yeah. right I was like Wow, that's some really sort of not hard hitting scenes, but just kind of very in, in, like intense. I just I'm not even sure how to describe it. I think the point in the movie at which you first sort of notice things going wrong is um is probably the the scene with the oil tanker. Yes. Um, which for for those who don't know, big boat, very big, <laughs> like huge, like mm-hmm. really huge boat. Um. Which I don't think it came across in the first like maybe five minutes of the scene, which no, I guess you're is right. the same it's a long thing. Way off, isn't it? You're thinking, yeah, that it's sort of facing this way and so on, and it's the way that they kind of just keep cutting back to it. Yes, and, and yeah, yeah. Normality. It's a, it. I personally thought it was really clever. I feel a lot of people would probably say, I was saying, I was saying to Claire before we started recording, it's kind of has that like hallmark shiny filmmaker sort of vibe to the mm-hmm. movie. You know, it's not the most like cinematically advanced. No. Um, film but I actually thought it was really nicely done to be honest yeah um, I mean they make there's obviously kind of conscious choices I think you know mm. within the film yes definitely make, make decisions like I was watching it lying in bed which is the second time of watching it and lying on my side and watching these kind of like views from above and the yeah. sort of of the te- camera yes really yeah, quite yeah. it was yeah it is 100% I think the the camera angles and the movements like 
adds to that it, you know they create that sense of nausea which I think adds to sort of how mm -hmm. unsettled you feel uh, especially we'll get to this in a bit probably but the, but the bit where um Archie who's the son of the of the, mm -hmm. the couple one of the children when his teeth start falling out I Oh, I, I yeah. like jumped out of bed to go brush my teeth. In many ways, I think the way in which there's no kind of like, it's not like, it's like really functionally gruesome. Like, yes. Yeah, rather than sort of like overblown, it just feels like yeah. this is what it would be like. Uh, oh, uh, so, yeah, so I think that's, you know, one of the things that is quite striking about the film is the way in which it takes this very small cast of characters mm. in a very normalized situation. Yes, everybody's quite wealthy and so on, and they do go into some social aspects that I'm sure we'll come on to. But by and large, you've just got a quite relatable sort of, if you had the money and you're in that sort of situation, you would take your family away for a few days, get away from, from work. And wouldn't that be nice? And then this sort of radical shift within that. I mean, I think that, you know, there's a lot of a lot of sort of slightly overly compressed character arcs and things like mm. that. But we've talked about that before, like a two hour film. Uh, it is, I, don't, I think they did try to add a lot in there because mm. obviously there's a bit of like a sort of like a class and a race narrative, mm -hmm. sort, of, sort mm -hmm. of like intersectional, but it feels very glossed over to me. I but again, I it is we were saying, yeah, as you were saying with the ending was a lot of people sort of I think I was looking at like Rotten Tomatoes and the audience sort of reviews were like the ending was really disappointing and it kind of came to a bit of nothing, but it's two hours and it's such mm -hmm. a huge sort of concept yeah. to tackle. Yeah. I mean, it was interesting to me, especially because I don't think I understood, you know, as I was going into this movie, just sort of levels of like cyber attack that you mm. could experience. I think that's probably quite a good place for us to start, isn't it? The sort of the concept. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that this is one of those things that probably most sort of lay people like us don't really, we hear lots about and you're sort of, you know, well-educated in, in sort of viruses and how not to open attachments and things like that. And we hear about hacks on companies where um uh, data gets released and you know you get a sort of apologetic email saying that you know somebody's nicked your identity or whatever so you know those are the sorts of things that that we know about mm. but it does play very nicely on the sort of what would happen if you had a really sophisticated comprehensive cyber attack um yeah and the, lots of you know lots of sort of discourse that says you know, the next great war um, I mean, we did talk the other day about sort of, you know, whether a war would look particularly modern, you know, if we have a third yeah. world war. Uh, but certainly there's been lots of discourse to say, well, no, it will be fought online in many ways. And that's yeah. obviously one of sort of the, the premises um, here. But you're right, we get this sort of oil tanker, which is very physical, very kind of like grinding into the beach. Um, yes. Yeah, I think there's a lot in the movie, especially for me, I think there was a lot of sort of these, like obviously with the, it being like a, a cyber attack there's a lot of like the transport links these huge mm. sort of like it's about like these planes sort of diving into the sea and like these like boats being washed up I think it's just the size I, I think there's a huge sort of size thing like in terms of yeah. scale that they yeah on, but I don't know. and I think that that's a really important observation in a way because it's like these huge things that are sort of like we just assume you know planes will stay in the sky mm. and ships will stay in the sea yeah. <laughs> and so I mean, and when you think about it yeah like as soon as you lose all contacts and signal you no know, air traffic controllers 
Uh, I was listening to that podcast that you actually sent oh, yeah, me yeah. as well yeah. um, about, um, I think it's like, you know, for the listeners, it's with Robert Sapolsky. Yeah, um, we'll put it in the show notes because yeah, it's playing in my mind as well as, as uh, but we've mentioned Robert Sapolsky's work before on Free Will. Yes. There's a really good interview with him on Lead. Yeah, yeah, really good. Um, but yeah, I think he mentions how, but this is a bit of a side point just because we're on tra- air traffic controllers and I was like, wow, is that so cool? But he talks about uh, elements of stress um, and how they can affect, you know, even the career uh, mm. that you sort of go into and how those people who go into being air traffic controllers and have these like higher levels of stress sort of ranging for a really long period of time, the whole entire time that they're at work end up quitting maybe a year or two into the job. Whilst uh, those people who have the ability to basically condense their feelings of stress to a single 30 second period mm. in this sort of 30 second spike end up being way more successful. But it was very good, very good um, podcast, Claire's recommendation. So yeah, please, I would definitely please. recommend that. And it, yeah, it did make me think you know, about a number of the sort of things that, uh, that yeah. I come up here. But one of the, the things you really, you know, you're right. There's obviously, there's always that question of, you know, the people that are involved. Mm. But I suppose there's a little bit of a sort of very slight near future element to this yeah. film, isn't there? So it's pretty much as things are now, but with, you know, self-driving cars and so on. Yeah, yeah. So we sort of saw a sort of, a greater move towards I guess you know automation AI yeah and, bigger uh, reliance like on like that. technology and stuff yeah, yeah. I mean um, even now is huge I mean one thing that I was considering is they, they you know they talk about a blackout throughout this movie but there's no actual like physical electricity blackout like they're still if complete like completely the whole entire grid cut out that yeah. would be also completely different Yes, I think that's right. And I suppose that's one of the reasons why there's a sort of this decision to set it in this um, rural environment, this very wealthy, um, sort of secluded um, environment that is almost certainly, I guess, independent from the power stations that are um, are running the city. Mm -hmm. So we've got that idea that they are that step removed from it, which also keeps them isolated from a real awareness of what's going on and maintains that kind of how serious is this kind of vibe. So, you know, they lose the internet, the TV, the phone, all of that to start with is just annoying. And I really thought they got that bit where everyone is like every five minutes going, I'll just go on the computer. Oh no, I'll just get your phone. Oh no, mm, it doesn't mm. work. Yeah. And so, you know, that sort of complete reliance whilst also yeah. saying, quite an ignorance of sort of um, like the details of of technology. I think there's there's a bit where oh, um, for sure. uh, she's like, oh, um, so Julia Roberts' character, Amanda, uh, this uh, middle-aged white woman, works in advertising and hates everybody um she you know sort of says oh he must be one of those sort of like cyber security nuts because it's a really uh, like the password is a novella and so on <laughs> her husband's like oh, i don't know how to reset a router and so on so this kind of thing that you know, all technology just happens we don't really understand yeah. like, you know how. no 100% not so yeah i thought that that was um you know an interesting thing and so it compared like, those like minor things like you can't get online versus the sort of huge things of planes literally falling out of the sky yeah and then you know it takes it really to an extreme i think because there's things like um the gps stops working radio seems to have mostly cut out we get little bits of radio um 
and sat phones not working. So suggesting that even the satellites, which are also, of course, operated by computers, could be taken out in a cyber attack kind of shows this kind of microcosm and macrocosm element of... Um, yes. I'm glad I'm doing the hand actions here, <laughs> audio format. Um, <laughs> and there's also something I think about the kind of the personal versus the sort of global, what we see as yeah. personal. So... George and his daughter, Ruth, the black couple who own the house, mm. the wife is on a plane. Or, yeah. So they assume. So that's that constant tension in the background as she's sort of, you know, sort of a Schrodinger's cat kind of character because they literally cannot know whether she is alive or dead um, mm. at that moment. So, yeah, so there's a lot of these scenes that on their own kind of you know they have more or less weight but it's that cumulative effect that I think really makes it a very tense film mm. you know there's this yeah there's the big idea of kind of what's going on in the outside world but there's also quite a lot I think about how people interrelate and that helps build part of the tension because well I suppose we're largely seeing through the eyes of this middle class white family in yes. a you know obviously a, a you know a house belonging to somebody wealthier than they are but they have paid you know two thousand dollars or something to mm. rent it so they're obviously not you know badly off or anything and then when we're, when the owners come to the door that moment of of fear um yes. which is definitely at least in part racially motivated and mm -hmm. you're right i think you know yes maybe it's glossed over a little bit but actually i felt it was referenced in quite good mm. ways the idea that there is a racial element to the yeah. Um, that are being made about this this um, this couple, but also, of course, there's just Amanda's character generally um, very uptight. Husband's a bit more relaxed. Um, yes. So yeah, I mean, what did you think about her reactions, like to the people at the uh, you know generally to people and also specifically to uh, George and Ruth when they come to their own door? There's definitely a subtlety in the way that they like showed the sort of racial element, which I thought was very like effective. I just I think my like qualm with it was is that I I think it was just like sort of in terms of what we're saying with the like sort of character arcs that these mm -hmm. you know people sort of went over. I feel like it was sort of I don't know. I I mean I think it was dealt with quite well. I don't know. I feel like I need to give it a bit more thought. I suppose we don't really know whether those tensions are in. Yeah. It, it, they're not eradicated over the course of the yeah. film. They are just alleviated in certain ways. I yeah, guess. definitely. So, I mean, I think for, as I mean, especially I uh, really loved Ruth's character, who mm. I think you know she's sort of this very like knowledgeable young person, mm. but also I think you know also has the privilege. Like you know, she asks you know what Amanda and her husband do um and Amanda's like sort of asking her the same thing and Ruth says that she's still working it out for herself where she sort of sits in a place of privilege um but I think she's I think both I, I like the sort of parallels between Amanda and Ruth because I feel like they have a bit of a bonding moment towards the end of the film when they're sort of yeah, they're surrounded by these deer and like try and ward them off together, but which is also like an incredibly intense moment. Anyways, yeah, I think it's interesting because I feel like they're both informed by their own experiences. Mm -hmm. I think there's definitely a bit of probably a like a bit of racial prejudice coming from Amanda. Um which she herself acknowledges. Which she herself you know, maybe not quite yeah. as many words, but when she no, says 100%. to George, you know, how badly she treated them when they arrived. Yeah, and then also but 
Ruth's own sort of apprehension about having these people in her house. She's very consistently sort of telling her dad, look, you know, let them go if they want to go. This is better for us. We've only got each other. And, you know, and she sort of says, like, if you're in this sort of situation, in this apocalyptic situation, one of the things that you need to be so sparing of is trust. And she was like, especially giving it to like white people, which is obviously informed by her own experiences as like a black woman. Yeah, I don't know. It's kind of hard because like part, you could partly see that like like Amanda's reaction to these two strangers coming to her house, especially, I think it was, I think it's very clear in her reaction of when they were saying that it was their house. Mm-hmm. They're like sort of doubting that. But I I completely, I think the stranger that like genuinely just having two strangers like staying mm. in the house. I don't know. It's very hard to toe the line because I'm not in a situation similar to her, but you can kind of see it from her perspective. Like you've got a house with like two children, but mm. I don't know. I think uh, like that you also have to sort of take some things at like face value and see that like clearly these two people are in like in need of help and I think having you know eventually they sort of put it together and realize you know sort of oil tanker from the beach earlier on and all of the phone lines and the networks going down etc sort of it compiled uh, well I don't know maybe part of you know her refusal to like let these people stay in that house was to try and off put what she like you know, as she said, she was she didn't mention the oil tanker to them when they were sort of putting yeah. the storyline together to um George and Ruth, uh, who were talking about this um blackout. She didn't mention that because she was worried it would confirm her own fears about something. Exactly. I mean, the fears are really multi layered, aren't they? Yeah. Because, you know, fear of their suspicions being true, fear of individual people, um, fear of the unknown. You know, I think all of this this kind of really comes through. And I think you're right to think that we might hope to be that, you know, the people who would be really generous, but the stranger at our door. But you're right, I think that most of us yeah. would react um, like Amanda reacts. Yeah. And um, the thing that made me think about the Robert Sapolsky uh, interview was he talked about um, putting people in brain scanners and looking at the reactions they have to faces and the way in which uh when you show black faces to white participants it uh ignites the fear response yeah and the amygdala consciously so you know and he he's not necessarily sort of he says you know how bad this is and how much of a problem this is but he also says it's not about people's kind of choices he has this theory about sort of free will and the way in which that that is something that essentially he's basically saying it's a it's a, a reaction that is is not our choice to make as it were um which is not to say that he doesn't think that we should be working to get rid of it but like it's built in from um yeah our experiences and our genes and 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 so on um that we get these fear responses and obviously that's that's based as he talks about you know in sort of you know hundreds of years of prejudice essentially um so i think that you know much as we would hope to be um you know as anti-racist um as possible as we can be on this um in this kind of discussion i think that also the film basically holds up to us you know a sort of a reality that even a sort of basically decent American family, white family, have mm. greater fear response because the couple that comes to the door is, is black. Yeah. But 
you know, and so there's a big commentary, I think, on kind of like not just how society treats one another in general, but the way in which the racial element um, plays into that. But, uh, you know, before she knows who they, you know, mm. on the doorstep, she's already um, saying to Amanda says to Clay, her husband, um, someone's here, get a bat. <laughs> so yes. That's like yeah. a normal thing to do. Yes. Be knocked on your door. Um, yeah, yeah. There's a pre-existing level of fear uh, to her. And Calais, of course, is is quite... I mean, they're quite an unlikely couple, don't you? Yeah, think? yeah. Um, although sure. they're also a couple that's, you know, grown over the years and they've obviously been together for ages. They've got, you know, a 16-year-old son or whatever um, Archie is. Um, so uh, there's there's a bit of that sort of, you know, middle-aged, long-married kind of set in their ways, not quite the same young people mm. that they used to be. Uh, but Calais is... is both way more chill and also like way more panicked when things go wrong. Wrong, so, yeah. Clay shows a bit more of that self awareness or awareness of others, maybe that mm. um, Amanda really struggles to do. But we'll talk about yes. the way that fits with her job. But when he says they were scared too, essentially about um about George and, and mm-hmm. Ruth, um he's like you know George keeps things very cool by and large, yes. very yeah, controlled he does. character considering yeah. everything that's happening. Um, yeah um, yeah and so i think he hides things but clay can kind of see through that and is is more aware whereas yeah. his wife's kind of like she goes like hackles go straight up and then she can't see past her own yes experiences, maybe. Sort of, yeah, experiences prejudices. Um, yeah i mean i think it's great that like like ruth and george's characters seem very like knowledgeable on what's hmm. going on like they're the sort of sharers of you know ruth sort of mentions that bit about the power plant yeah. and how you know, um, a sort of whole entire area can get hacked from just this one mm. place where this power plant may be. Um, and how I think I George like George, what does he do? He's kind of isn't he he's like a financial advisor or he something? Is, that's right. Along yeah. those lines. Yeah. He has I think he tells a really like interesting story. I think this is where the sort of um like intersection between race and also wealth kind of comes in where he was talking about one of his clients who mm-hmm. would make a lot of you know it was sort of this huge guy in the business um mm-hmm. at the top um he was very wealthy and how he was saying that like a couple of months or something mm-hmm. or a couple of days ago before this this sort of big apocalyptic event happened he was like the this sort of client of his rang him up on the phone was saying move all of this money around these big numbers and George makes a joke to this guy he you know mm-hmm. sort of usually makes these sort of punchlines and stuff mm-hmm. about him going off to hang out with his um evil cabal that rules evil the world cabal. yeah and you know this guy usually loves a bit of those sort of jokes uh but he just doesn't laugh and as so you can kind of i don't know i think that those sorts of scenes where it was just them like it was amanda and george sat yeah. at the, like you know this table having a drink and george sort mm-hmm. of he just you know he sort of seems a bit like a man on the inside obviously one of the things i think that uh you know the the film is therefore doing is to sort of challenge some of the prejudices that uh, amanda holds and that maybe yeah. kind of a white viewer holds actually where yeah. you know because we really are kept in the dark to start with mm. were you feeling like this could be some trick conspiracy something dodgy or sure. just, were you, you know i think yeah. that they do keep us thinking that for that it could be yeah yeah i mean i, th- I think there's also like the mention of the like i love you bug which um oh, yeah Actually, yeah. I heard about like even before where sort of yeah, it's I don't know, I'm sure listeners know, but it's like this sort of little like spam email that you'd mm. receive and when, you know, upon opening it, 
it would like send that same email to all of your contacts and it like sort of broke down whole businesses and then that's right it's sort of before i think you know there was a greater awareness but also it's just that simple. we're recording this on valentine's day by the way everybody <laughs> i feel that i feel that you know they yes you get a nice email that says i love you click on it and, <laughs> you know yeah i think that um and one of the points that's being made there is that we are aware of cyber attacks yeah. we're not always aware of the kind of the motivations because yeah that's be a couple of teenagers in the philippines and there's sort of the malevolent hacker and the sort of there's the sorts of obviously hackers who sort of want to hack things to prove that they can yeah. and then there's the sort who are doing it for you know particular political purposes or there's the sorts of people who basically don't really think about the consequences like that example and then there's the fact that mm. all of these same skills can be used for something damaging well, again you sort of hear all the time about those stories of like these teenagers who's you know I've like learned these skills themselves and have hacked like huge mm. like government databases like the Pentagon or something. Yeah. And it, again, I think it comes from that probably ignorance of technology mm. that you sort of just yeah. sit there and assume that like there are all these sort of firewalls protecting mm. all of your like personal information and stuff. But you, it, you raise, all that stuff isn't automatically set up for you no. or exists. Like it has to be put in place. Like, it does. Like, and of course, you know, I think that we have various awareness levels of awareness i suppose kind of technological awareness um mm. of i suppose from from the sort of person who falls for a spam email and you know i don't think that is exclusively the sort of old and ignorant i think that they're you know i've had colleagues who've buggered the entire system of the mm. school by clicking on an attachment you think you know these are reasonably intelligent professionals and they still um still do it through to the idea that obviously even major banks for example you know are only as good as their programmers on their security system being better than the programmers who are hacking them and you know that's going to be a constant i suppose kind of paradoxical um battle in the world of um it security but you know most of us go out and use public wi-fi and you know do things that uh you know save all our uh, use all the same passwords save them all to a password manager that isn't necessarily like you know the most locked one and then of course i hear the other thing did you see there's a guy who um has uh got two chances to remember his password to access two million in bitcoin can't remember his password <laughs> so oh my gosh really you hear about this again yeah there's another case this week i think oh no uh, so, oh no you know, there's, there's all these different levels of kind of like technical yeah. and so on um even my generation and your generation yours well I say this I find it interesting I always want to say that the younger generation is more tech savvy but actually when working with um young people I used to find that their tech savviness was quite like specific so some of them were really like great on like coding and things like that and you know were buying dodgy stuff off the dark web and so on um mm. then we had the the sort of you know the fact that you'd sit them down and uh, and be like uh, and this is how you get a capital letter on your key <laughs> yeah. you know yeah certainly that idea that i think you know most people um a generate a new generation will come through who are basically more aware than they are and the people who are running things may not be at the forefront of of what's going on in terms of um of technology yeah and you know i don't I know, maybe it's maybe it's my age maybe it's my lack of interest but I don't know a great deal about you know how to get onto the dark web and things like that but mm-hmm. um there was a following the um murder of Brianna Jai uh there's been a call out for um 
essentially trying to limit the way in which young people can access the dark web because that's what the killers did, but also oh. um, that, uh, that that was something that was basically rife among um, uh, for her and for her, her classmates, uh, kind of seeing things that we wouldn't expect them to see. And I just... It, makes me realize that you know there's all these levels of sort of um things that can be done with yeah. uh, the the internet and one of these days i'm going to finish this book i'm reading at the moment which is called uh tech feudalism what killed Capital- capitalism by yanis varifakis okay put it in the notes uh it's very large so, uh, but one of the things that he's talking about there is this idea of kind of the shift of power uh into a um capitalism that's no longer based on physical assets it's based instead on digital, like cloud assets, basically, yes. um, and the way in which that's you know shifting power and resource um, and and changing like the face of late capitalism. So all of that conveys things around power, which brings us back to what you were saying about the bloke on the phone. Uh, you know, this this heads up that that George has got that both that man who we're told is you know at the forefront of defence contracts and things like that, you know, billionaire in the um, uh, in the business world can give George a sort of tip-ish, an awareness of something that's going on. And so you've got these levels, I mean, like the multi-billionaires who are able to react, if not foresee, then certainly react to something catastrophic coming. Then you've got somebody like in George's kind of privileged position who's on the fringe of that, so has a sort of secondary awareness of what's going on. And then you've got people like Amanda and Clay who would have had no idea what was going on had they not by chance, you know, met um, Mm -hmm. George. And even then, obviously, it's scanned. And then you've got, obviously, those people who essentially seem to have disappeared from the narrative because they're not in their houses. They're presumably in the city, which um, we can see as the centre of sort of ongoing destruction. Um, So uh, a lot of levels of power there um, in that element. Um, so we've got the sort of the fear level in terms of interrelation of um, of people in the actual sort of specifics. And the other one that I wanted to mention was um, when Clay um, goes out driving, GPS doesn't work, gets completely yes. lost, gets himself into quite a state, uh, which maybe is fair. Um, mm. I don't know, uh, not finding, not being able to find your way back in a situation where you don't know what's going to happen to you. Is, I can see that. Mm. But he meets this Spanish um, speaking woman on the road. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you make of that scene? Um, God, it was a bit... It kind of reminded me of sort of the beginning moments of The Last of Us where mm. they're sort of driving away, trying to escape this mm. apocalyptic outbreak of disease from the main city and sort of, like, drive past this family who's, like, like bidding the car down to try and pull over. They kind of they sort of gave the same vibes as that where... Well, Clay does pull over and he does try and communicate to this woman and he rolls down yeah. the window and he's trying to speak to her. Uh, and again, I think that comes from his like sort of easygoing nature. Mm-hmm. But he eventually decides to drive off. And I think it's because, of, again, with I think it sort of goes back to these these sort of like levels of sort of fear and stress yeah. that are accumulated. And I think his response was probably quite, I'd say, like normal for what the situation was but he you know he decides to drive off and leave this woman alone on her own you know in in the middle of the road and I think he has quite a lot of guilt about that and confesses to Ruth Hmm. um, only after they've got stoned together (laughs) after they got stoned together yes but I don't know it's 
it, it's again hard sort of situation to be in because it is. another sort of bringing in an extra sort of factor new strange and new variable into yep. the situation yeah. where you know uh, I, I think it's sort of we later meet the the character what's his name Danny, one, Danny yeah, yeah, Danny the next door neighbor. We later meet Danny the next door neighbor who has this sort of huge ethos about protecting his own mm -hmm. and, and sort of looking out for himself. And yeah, I mean, at some point, you know, there, you sort of have to commit to that, especially in a place where there's like limited resources. And, and you know, Amanda still has the sort of idea where she mentions an army base, thinking that the government's still going to provide for them. Yeah, that's right. The state will intervene. That's not really the case anymore. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think that raises some really interesting points. I mean, one of the things that I think is, for me, one of the biggest factors of this is this question that, Yes, we've talked about particularly with say, yes, The Last of Us is a, a really good example, which is essentially this idea that in desperate situations, trust erodes and um, uh, yes, you know, if somebody is stopping you on the side of the road, you don't know whether they mean yes. harm or not. And this comes up a lot, I suppose, in post-apocalyptic um, yeah. narratives. I also think that it's just worth mentioning that what you've got there is, obviously, um, this Latina uh, woman, yeah. probably um, a a working yeah, class person yeah. within this very rich environment, I think is what we're sort of, uh, is implied. Mm. You know, she doesn't have the big car, she doesn't have a car at all, as far as we can see. She doesn't seem to speak English. And of course, Clay doesn't seem to speak any mm -hmm. Spanish. Um, like so the there's that communication. Barrier, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting because we're not told what, the woman is saying no. in Spanish my Spanish is far too weak to be able to follow something that is that sort of yeah, fast and then I looked it up on the transcript and it was just like woman speaking Spanish <laughs> <laughs> like this person who wrote the transcript up speaks Spanish we're really you know unless we're Spanish speakers yeah. then obviously we're left in the same position as Clay like you know just mm. you know this woman is obviously frantic but his fear wins yeah. out rather than his to, to help her and I think that this is one of the sort of the strengths of the film and the way it explores, you know, whether people are better together or better yeah. apart in these kind of apocalyptic situations, which of course is what, you know, The Last of Us does yes. as well, yeah. you know, sort of breaking that kind of barrier. And it also made me think about a book that I put on our book recommendation on Instagram a few weeks ago called The Future by Naomi Alderman, uh, which is really, really good. I really liked it. But the the thing that sort of I think is reflected here is it talks a lot about the survivalist community. Yeah. And one of the things that it really draws on is this idea that for survival really to work, it has to function within communities. Actually, if you go it alone, then you will not survive. Mm -hmm. So quite counter to that sort of, and it really explores this, this idea of kind of, um, you know, people who go it alone, particularly the the billionaires who, um, uh, you know, create their special uh, hideaways and bunkers and um, and tech-based protections and so on. Um, so, you know, that's something that that, that book really looks at uh, in quite an interesting way. And yet we tend to see survivalists being like Bill mm -hmm. in The Last mm -hmm. of Us um, or like Danny in Leave the World Behind, you know, this idea that, I'm now out for myself. I'm going to sort of lock the doors and and um, people who have previously been friends, neighbours, colleagues, you know, these are people that I now won't even allow to approach my house mm -hmm. and will only see them with a gun in hand. So 
that kind of links to the end of uh, a bit uh, just before the very end, but when George and Clay are talking yeah. about what's going on. So maybe we should sort of save that. But I think that we obviously see this dynamic of are these two families stuck in the same house with the owners of the house having to sleep in the basement? Um, very nice mm-hmm. basement suite, but obviously not in their own rooms. <laughs> and we see the kind of like the development of that uh, relationship moving between kind of tension and friendship as you said you know in having a drink or um you know sharing some pots or whatever and then something you like reminds them of the the level of fear so should we talk about the sort of the way in which we see them trying to amanda and her family trying to trying to leave and then having to come back because that i think is quite a um a strong moment in in the mm. sort of like a bit of a oh, yeah. point in the film because I thought, you know, we've mentioned this before, but this idea of kind of technology being controlled. Uh, I, mean, I thought one of the things that I hadn't thought of that was really effective was the self-driving mm. car scene. Yeah, I, th- I think there's a clip of like Elon Musk reacting to that, which I actually didn't manage to get around to. I was really thing. surprised that they seem to have got Tesla yeah, branding. Yeah, no, that's that. true. Um, is that like all publicity is good for <laughs> 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 um, don't know. Yeah, he's only listened to Tesla's not really painted the best light there. Um, but yeah, no, I, I thought that was quite uh, like an intense scene as well. I think they're really good at building tension in that sense. But yeah, so, th- you know, the family decides to sort of drive out and go to their, like, like go to Amanda's sister's who lives, who lives mm. in New Jersey, I think. New Jersey, yeah. that's right. And they're like, oh, really, everything will be fine in New Jersey. Be fine in New Jersey. Um, which is kind of ignoring, mm-hmm. the, again, that sort of like, there's that sort of microchasm. Yeah, exactly. And that sort of, I think that it moves a lot between that sort of sense of like horrific mm. apocalyptic fear towards the sort of desire to rationalize yeah, to move yeah, on. Yeah. They will look back and laugh and so on, which is really effective. But yeah, so off they're yeah, going to okay. try and get yeah. onto the uh, expressway. Yeah, expressway. And they get there and it's just a line of cars that have like, you know, sort of seem to like be, you know, bumper to bumper crashed into each other. And I think there's this sort of moment where like Amanda gets out the car to investigate and she's sort of just thinking and observing. And like at the same time, it is sort of in this timeline where the audience itself is putting it together. And then <laughs> I think again, so and suddenly Clay seen, sees a, this car coming down the freeway towards them and he's like oh my god there's someone here someone else we can communicate mm-hmm. with again coming out as like friendly nature yeah, and then it's just exactly. that sinking feeling of like you realize you know sort of there's a sort of sweeping shot over a label where it's a self-driving car mm-hmm. and you're like oh god and it's yeah i don't know again it's it's all of these like sort of big vehicle events where like there's you know it's it's really quite scary because even when the like oil tanker comes onto the shore it's like hot like huge little mini tsunami of water comes across and like you know digs up all the sand and it's the same thing with the like plane is like genuinely like you know effects on the landscape that could kill someone yeah i mean when when george is running from that plane and he's in the house and like the water just like I was sat there like initially being like, oh, that's not, that's nowhere near him. He's going to be fine standing on the beach. And then suddenly the camera pans over and it's just like all the sand's getting like ripped up and the water's yeah. coming yeah. over the bank and everything. And I'm like, okay, yeah. never mind. Good thing he started yeah. to 
And again, you know, I think like sort of preceded by that sort of the gradual yeah. awareness of what's going on. Yeah, it's on. a very And like... when he goes to pick up that watch yeah. from the... Oh, God, yeah. And there's an, a, a disembodied yes. arm attached. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and as you know, as he sort of further explores, he sort of sees this like rubble and like, and you know, then finds the dead body and then looks around. It's, yeah, I don't know, it's very yeah. well revealed, yeah. but yeah, no, it's 100% that sort of every time building up that tension towards it, but yeah, and sort of obviously that's where the sort of implication of you know, George's wife having not made it comes mm, from, absolutely. And I think we see this interesting thing about kind of. Again, the communication, we've mm. said that communication is obviously a problem more widely, even the sat phone doesn't yes. work. Little snippet on the radio, uh, we get a, obviously an emergency broadcast, um, we can talk about the leaflets perhaps in oh, a moment, yeah. but we get sort of little snippets of things. And yet there's another level of disinformation, which is, you say, is the sort of, you know, who reveals yeah. what to whom at different times. So the retaining of, mm. you know, holding things back, Clay not saying that he met somebody on the road, bearing in mind that there doesn't really seem to be anybody yeah. about, you know, quite sure this is perhaps a community where lots of people have holiday properties and they're in their yeah. flats in the city, just the way that George and Ruth would have been. But, uh, you know, there's no one really yeah. around. And yet there's also this fact that, you know, people don't tell each other things. And, of course, what George is trying to do is to protect Ruth is, from yeah. the knowledge that plates are falling out of the sky. And, you know, Amanda goes and puts her foot in it and sort of reveals yeah. that. But, of course, yeah. there's also this potential for kind of like infantilising yes. um, Ruth. Yeah. And the question about whether you tell the children what is going on, you know, the, the younger children. You know, at what point does everybody have a right to know that the world is ending? Because in a way, it's sort of we see the way that they're kind of like Archie and uh, Rose interact with each other uh, to sort of, you know, show that they're they are aware that you know everything is is falling apart, but they haven't really got you know they want to rely on the adults, but the adults don't know what's going on either. There's a lot of interesting stuff there. Shall we talk about? young people mm -hmm. and then let's maybe come back to kind of the the leaflets and the kind of background to the apocalypse and, and so on because i think that one of the things that is interesting about this is the is the depiction of these these young people you've already mentioned that mm. ruth is um is is fairly savvy yeah. i think this is part of a way of kind of challenging the sort of racist narrative where amanda had said oh they're probably you know the handyman and, and the housekeeper or something mm. like that and then you know, obviously um the sophistication is supposed to to bring her up short as it were but Ruth is also quite a sort of, I don't know, she feels like quite a sort of Gen Z sort of yes. character in, in, you know, the way that she's painted. She's also, yes, she's, you know, aware of her, maybe less aware of her own privilege, yeah. but certainly is much more wary, perhaps much more savvy, you know, when she says to um, her father, something you've already mentioned, but I've got the quote here, I'm asking you, for you to remember that if the world falls apart, trust should not be doled out easily to anyone, especially white people. But she's also sort of been delaying taking her place in the world. Yeah. And again, this felt like a really kind of like link to, to things we talked about before with like a sort of at the end of um, our last episode, mm. about sort of the treatment of uh, Gen Z when she says, I'm still figuring my shit out, trying not to rush into anything. The last thing that I want is to be sucked into a career that I regret 10 years from now, by which point I will be trapped by the pressure to stay the course because I'll be too old to re-enter the workforce. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely, I, I think, I mean, it's, I kind of feel like there's almost three generations in this house is like sort of you've got <laughs> yeah. the the millennials or gen x the gen z represented by Ruth. yeah i was wondering about that yeah i if they feel older than older millennials really yeah 
young Gen X. Yeah, I feel like sort of Archie and Rosie, sort of the younger two, so that's 13 to 16, sort of. Considering the fact that we think it's set slightly more into the future, it makes sense that yeah. there'd be kind of this new emergence of like Gen Alpha. So Amanda sort of says this bit, which we're going to quote, about the tanker, like when they get home after this, you know, sort of this huge boat washes up on the beach that her and uh, Clay are sort of worrying about it, trying to find out what happened. And then she says, meanwhile, the kids seem to have completely gotten over it like it was something they saw on a show. They're on on the next episode. Yeah, that's a good thing or a bad thing. I don't know. I, I think there's a bit of a sort of tendency for like these script writers to kind of infantilize and sort of almost, yeah, yeah I don't know, zone in, like hone in on the sort of like bringing these younger kids on the internet and that it's sort of like we have all, you know, everyone's got this sort of episodic little um, minds and it's all about dopamine and sort of mm. getting on to the next big trend and stuff. But I don't know. I I think there is elements of that. And also I feel like Gen Alpha isn't really old enough to really... We're not really ready to see yeah. what the effects of like such a overly online and sort of digital upbringing is going to... Like what sort of effects that's going to have. Yeah, I think they... I mean, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on just kind of like how much they sort of don't know about um, like, you know older technology like she's like what do they call it when they keep showing uh, oh, old just, shows yeah and things but, like that. And I was thinking, you know that feels a bit it, I don't yeah know, it doesn't feel very realistic. but as you say maybe if we're a little bit further uh you know sort of um 10 20 years um I think line, maybe there's a huge it. thing about sort of I don't know older generations being like oh the younger generations don't know how to write a check or something like that I think I saw some sort of sketch about that and I'm like yeah I mean uh, yeah maybe I do know how to write a check well I I, I do know how to write a check personally but also th- like this is outdated technology like do you know how Please, to use a gramophone really... no because it's outdated actually I ah, do because okay. I, I raised my hands but, to you Claire but, but you are right it is very outdated <laughs> I had to look you know, and I think that it's the yeah. You're quite right. What what's the mm. point with other things that are basically obsolescent? Yeah. yeah, and I think that yeah, there's a. I think I think that's an interesting thing because you're right. On the one hand, I think there is an infantilizing of them, and there's obviously there's a bit of a reductionist mm. element because like Archie's characterized basically by buying like a hormonal teenager yeah. who takes non-consensual pictures of Ruth yeah. in her bikini. But then there's you know with Rose, there's her obsession with friends. Mm. Which I think, you know, although like the first time I watched it, I was like, this is really not believable. No. Because yes, people get into old shows. Just, yeah. Of course they do. But a child of that age getting into friends, particularly when it's, you know, it was absolutely seminal for my generation. Yeah. But, you know, even though I can look back on it with a sort of certain nostalgia, yeah. I also can see just how like really dated and, and you know, potentially, <laughs> yeah. it, you know. But maybe it's supposed to reflect something. I mean, Ruth, I think, calls it nostalgia for a time that never existed. Yeah. She questions this. So maybe it is supposed to say something about kind of this family and the way in which they're kind of um, not fully sort of or up, to, up to date, doesn't seem quite right, but like fully like aware of prejudices mm. we've said already, but also kind of like maybe it shows Rose's kind of discomfort of the world in which she lives if she wants to go back yeah. to something and that I thought was a really you know, interesting aspect because if we take the opposite view rather than saying that they're infantilized when we see Archie and Rose together they're actually 
yeah, they're ignorant on on plenty of things like, you know, all wild animals ever because they're so city kid kind of thing. But they're also like actually quite existentially aware, I yeah. think. And it's to remember that level of sort of existential dread that really um, pervades a generation growing yeah. up in a time of environmental collapse and uh, the challenges of, of a late capitalist society for a young workforce and these kinds of things, you know, these are very, very real and yes. very, you know, manifest in the mental health issues that um, pervade people of your age and younger, I suppose. Um, so, you know, I felt there was a little bit of awareness of of that, really. Um, and certainly I think that uh, the kids seem quite a bit more grown up when they're sort of seen on their own. Um, I think it's when um, Rose is trying to explain, you know, what it is that uh, she saw with the with yes. the deer when she first sees them in the morning. And she's like, uh, this morning I saw deer, not a deer, a fuck <laughs> lot of deer, a hundred deer. Mm. <laughs> it's like, um, you know, because she thinks this is no point telling her parents because her but, parents won't yeah. pay any attention. That I thought was another really interesting thing. They quite want the kids just to go off and do their thing, be in the yeah. pool, not engage in the adult conversations, um, and so on. Should we talk about animals then? Yes. Fuck a lot of deer. Fuck a lot of deer, yes. I think there's quite a bit of like a environmental sort of effect of this sort of cyber attack, which I I don't think it's fully explained at all. Like, no, I get that tiny, like, Clay manages yeah. to get a tiny bit of rubbish yeah. here when he's like, well, they're like, a uh, fallout that's led to a catastrophic environmental disaster. Impacting animal migration patterns, which I was really interested. I was watching it and I was like, oh, maybe I'll do a bit of Googling around this. Maybe they're sort of like, they've taken some sort of scientific explanation and put it into mm. the film and it's actually all true. Um, which I need to like further do research on because I, well, I don't know. I, I thought they were going to explain it, but they never really get into it. Um, I wonder what mm-hmm. the sort of reason behind that is. But yeah, in the film, we see all sorts of animals that seem to be like moving across this land that, you know, Amanda and Clay and their children are like, you know, in the near the house that they're living in, where there's loads and loads of these deer, um, you know, in the hundreds of the fuck ton loads um the sort of just appear well i see the, the thing of my confusion is they reoccur throughout this movie so clearly they're not migrating very far if they keep coming well, back. no exactly um, and i think that you know there's a question there isn't it you know did they suddenly sprint up to uh this particular bit mm-hmm. of land but i suppose what we are supposed to be thinking is like so we get uh, the deer which to start with you're like okay yeah woodland and so on you know i mean where I've lived, you know, lots of places with with deer and occasionally my parents get them in their garden and stuff, you know, quite nice to see and so on. But, you know, not not something that you would worry about too much. And then they get the flamingos, which land in their pool. And you're like, okay, you know, a bit weird, but also, you know, cool pink birds landing in your pool and so on. And we see a load of geese going overhead at one point. So it's like there's a lot of animals and kind of not in the place that you'd expect them to be. But it's not like you know, wolves have suddenly invaded mm. or, or lions or bears or something. You know, these are basically animals that are sort of on the surface harmless. Yeah. And, yeah, I don't think we get an explanation necessarily for it, but it does certainly do a lot to add to the kind of horror movie element. Yes, yeah, definitely. So, yeah, you know, the deer are genuinely really menacing. Yeah, they quite are. Do you think, were they... Real deer or oh, CGI deer? Absolutely not real. I was there was no point. I, I didn't think you could get that many sinister looking deer. Not at all. <laughs> I was, I, 
they were very sinister looking I was quite unsettled but um no it was I think it was this because they had the, like these sort of three different scenes of like intent like you know sort of Amanda and Ruth absolutely ballistically screaming at these deer to like back them away and then I think it was I think the most intense part was um, George and Clay when they were at uh, neighbor Danny's house trying to ask for the, the medicine and sort of the when the like weapons get pulled out. And one yeah. thing that I did question was how, in the same way, that, for example, in The Last of Us, that people take advantage of sort of the commotion to like yeah. wreak havoc. There wasn't really any of that. You you didn't really see anyone out there, you know, sort of like looting or you know yeah. taking advantage of all this commotion. Is that just a product of the fact that they're basically in this sort of little hamlet? Yeah, There's only one way in and that's out. That's true. And there's an interesting moment, I think, you know, at the end or towards the end when uh, we just see Ruth staring and staring and then Amanda goes to join her. We're thinking, oh, is it more deer? What is it? And it's, it's the, the city, city in the yeah. distance a mushroom cloud over it so you know that is a really clever kind of juxtaposition of kind of the fear of yes okay you could be trampled by a herd of deer and you could absolutely be killed by the the big um stag that was kind of at the end but that kind of fear versus the somebody's dropped an yeah, atomic Tom, yeah bomb. i think they said about radiation yeah they do mention about radiation as well you know and again with like it's that unknown isn't it because archie yes. we know gets like bitten by a tick yeah, or something yeah, yeah. but then of course there's also a sonic attack does does lyme disease cause the falling out of teeth didn't think it did I mean, it can it can manifest in a number of different ways, but yeah, it, it. it's often um, my understanding is it's linked with the same condition. Well, not linked with, but it's similar to the condition that I have to ME, um, okay. which in which your teeth do not fall out. I'm pleased to report. Okay. Well, um, and it's one of the things they test for um, um, uh, when they're sort of trying to define um, these sort of quite um, challenging chronic illnesses. Mm. So yeah, you know, I think we're led to think maybe it was a tick, maybe it was an insect, but I think it's much more likely that, you know, Archie said he didn't put his hands over his ears fast enough. Yes, yeah, yeah. And the next thing you know, his teeth have gone loose and he's vomiting in a gross way. So maybe it's two things. Yeah. But it's difficult, isn't it? Because with Danny, you're like, okay, so he is a survivalist, you know, again, there's an element of sort of both this sort of panic prepping but also this kind of an element of privilege because he can buy up all the bottled water and and so on mm. um but there's also kind of conspiracy theory elements to him isn't there so yes, like can we trust him when he's sort of saying you know sound waves carrying like radiation microwaves some physics stuff that i probably should have yeah. checked before <laughs> so, um, i mean also my question is they just give archie some random pills like what have you given him paracetamol i don't like well you don't know what it is you're not i mean again, no it pills is that, sort of, that cost a thousand dollars a thousand dollar pills but um yeah no i mean again it's always that question of like when you're in those situations where someone needs medical attention like what are you going to do uh, like they're effectively trapped where they are you can't not, even you know no doctor google or anything so there is you know i think there is yeah a fear element and of course you know if he's got an infection then yes you know antibiotics whatever it would be a good thing to be able to to give him but if this is his teeth falling out because his head has been shaken by this noise mm. then presumably all you can do is you know get some false teeth and yeah um so yeah you know i think it raises a, obviously this really important question about how reliant we are on not just the state but the whole kind of construction of society and people you know who do things for us 
So you know, it's, a, it's a very vivid way of looking at that. And to pick up on another thing you said, you know, this way in which there's a, a really interesting balance with the with the guns thing. So when they're sort of standing, you know, off the doorstep, because I'm not allowed on the doorstep of Danny's house, and um, he's got his shotgun, and then George pulls his um, handgun, and you've just got Clay jumping up and down in the middle, asking them not to fight. There's something almost kind of comedic about it. And I thought that this film did do well to balance the kind of really horrific with the sort of slightly cringe. Mm, yeah, definitely. So that was a good moment, you know, and, and Clay going, I'm just a useless weak man, you're a proper man. <laughs> and uh, and likewise, when um, oh, Amanda and George are dancing, you know, and the embarrassing sort of middle-aged dancing. Uh, and very cute. But, it was very cute. But then, like, immediately followed by the alarm. Yeah. No, my one weird qualm was, like, in the little dancing bit where, like, George and Amanda were having a bit of bond, suddenly it's like, whoa they're like the sexual tension i was like this has come out no yeah vast amount of drinking that they'd been okay and i think again there's something about this kind of you know i think that that's i think that's you know what it was supposed to be you know Mm. unusual situation and yeah there is that kind of what would you do in an apocalypse yeah well if you you know there's partly the sort of rational trying to find things out and and do things and Mm. sort of fill the bathtub and so on and then there's the kind of drink all the expensive wine that you were saving for a special occasion not much point for that anymore mm. you know um and generally try and sort of like feel a bit better about things it's the same as when we were talking about um the society like the first night what do they do they all get completely yeah. wasted and trashed yes yeah, yeah. so yeah okay so we talked about you know sort of hopped around here i think that one of the things that we should talk about is basically this idea of the potential situation of what has actually gone on because we don't get any clear answers and I think that we're supposed Mm -hmm. to experience that along with everybody else in the film yes but obviously we get leaflets being dropped in again a really good kind of slightly scary scene where yeah it's trying to outrun outrun yeah I mean it was quite scary like it was I think it was scary in the sense that like you couldn't quite tell from it again it's that slow sort of approach of this huge sort of uh, sizable vehicle yeah just just yeah just stop you i was like is this sort of some sort of chemical warfare suddenly yeah it was scary i think you know i I don't know i think my like anxiety was also accelerated by the fact that you know uh, clay's reaction to just like turning his car around and going the other way i was like what is he running from is this downfall of red like what What is it? But then you know, it sort of gets close, and you see these like little little bits of like A five bits of paper and stuff. Um, so yeah, but I think the sort of really scary bit about that hits when it's when uh Danny shares his his insider knowledge that he was like, I'll I'll tell you this for free, where he says, oh, it's the Koreans, and they go, oh no, but we think it's like the Iranians or something. Yeah. And they're sort of like, oh, and, and it sort of click, starts clicking for George. What yeah, you know, exactly. that's what was going on. There's like misinformation and stuff that's going and on. I think again, there's a really strong sense of bringing up the fear of the sort of the other because we've got yeah, like yeah. these dropping of leaflets, which are in Arabic, and yes. the only person who can read "Death to America" is Archie because he's been yeah. playing some video game with it in. So there's that kind of like oh, this is something we can't read, it's it's foreign, it's in a script that we can't understand, yeah. we've got no way of finding out what's written on it. Um, so there's that kind of like 
well, it's a very Anglophone fear that I think, you know, yeah. combined with uh, the Spanish situation and so on, it's, uh, you know, we see lots of kind of, you know, if it's not made available to us in English, we can't do anything about it. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, Danny's saying that, oh, you know, my friend found leaflets and they were either in Korean or Chinese, he couldn't tell which. And again, you know, that sort of level of yeah. othering sort of all, yeah. all Eastern cultures. Oh, okay. Yeah, you know. I saw, yeah, um, everything. So, um, you know, I think that that, again has i think you know it's perhaps quite reflective of a growing view in well certainly kind of america under trump and therefore maybe yeah. it's coming back of this idea of basically america for america and increasingly you know like trump sort of you know the risk of him withdrawing america from nato and um these kinds of things where basically america becomes more and more sort of potentially insular and yes therefore is you know potentially a greater threat from not only other forces but also yeah. its perception of the other forces that everybody becomes an enemy yeah uh, yeah i know i think that's what you know what george sort of says is like or like clay says oh you know america's made a lot of enemies or mm. something that you again it's kind of it's almost a bit of like their own sort of doing sort of thing where you wouldn't know who, you know, if you had a feud with one person and then suddenly this like terrible occurrence that's been yeah. set up happens to you, you're going to be like, oh, I wonder who that is. But when yeah, everyone exactly. around you is, is, isn't is a big fan, then you mm-hmm. can't ultimately decipher who, who, who may be at fault. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, there's this, there's obviously this sort of America feeling that, you know, it's made lots of enemies, but there's yeah. also, of course, you know, the the other sort of scary elements, which, so I think Danny mentions the Russians having withdrawn their uh, ambassadors. Yeah. So, you know, this idea that, oh, did Russia know is thrown in there as well. And then you've got like George is talking about basically the impact on the markets and the way in which there were sort yeah. of unexpected fluctuations in the markets that um he felt meant something was happening don't really know what that means markets markets money money. (laughs) i mean i suppose this i suppose what we're seeing there is this idea that you know of of kind of wanting to like his client wanting to remove um, to move his money so sort of an awareness of places that are going to lose their stability so maybe if if america is going to collapse you don't want your money invested in well you don't really want it invested in in the dollar um you don't yeah. want it invested in in american um stocks and shares so um you know i think that, that there's a sense that is there somebody you know, if somebody knows something then certain people who have powerful connections will learn it and it's this thing about basically you know you can't predict the future but you can see you know i suppose which way the wind is blowing and um and of course, also, if you're in the very powerful elite, there's this question about how much do you make the future as well? Because if you control vast swathes of the market um, and so on. But George argues before his final realisation that, you know, it's not about an evil cabal at all. It's actually about the fact that really everything is just right on the cusp of chaotic potential all the time. This idea that no one is in control, no one is pulling the strings. I was talking about um, the X-Files and my current x-files binge watch and they are uh, exploring the idea of this kind of like international group outside of government who mm. holds this power and kind of you know other ones who actually decide what happens in the world that's a very popular theory but in many ways george's theory is much scarier and mm. also, i think really quite um feasible 
really, probably more feasible um, in a way. So, I mean, the very final thing that George kind of put pieces together from all of these things that um, he's, like from his work and from what's going on, is the three-stage programme for how to destabilise a country. Because mm-hmm. my primary client works in the defence sector, I spent a lot of time studying the cost-benefit analysis of military campaigns. There was one program in particular that terrified my client the most. A simple three-stage maneuver that could topple a country's government from within. The first stage was isolation. Disable their communication and transportation. Make the target as deaf, dumb, and paralyzed as possible. Setting them up for the second stage. Synchronized chaos. Terrorize them with covert attacks and misinformation. Overwhelming their defense capabilities, leaving their weapon systems vulnerable to extremists in their own military. Without a clear enemy or motive, people would start turning on each other. Done successfully, the third stage would happen on its own. What's the third stage? A coup d'etat. Civil War. Collapse. I don't know. I I don't know how much of it is fictionalised for the specific movie, but it sounds... I don't know. It's That's intense. I think it was... I don't know. It it made a lot of sense, um, I think. But, um, yeah, no. Like, I definitely think... I don't know. Oh, God, I don't know what to say about it. Um, Yeah, I I think that... You're right, it becomes very convincing within this world Mm. where we see that the way that fear can take hold so easily. And I think that we kind of feel the same, you know, like, I don't know, would we have let George and Ruth into the house? What would have happened if, you know, if, if you hadn't? There's lots here, I think, about the sort of this question of how would you behave in this scenario? Um, and quite quickly, this idea that, you know, that that fear that we get throughout the film, kind of, you know, sharing in the fear of the, the characters does make us think how how fast, you know, things could break down. It's, it, it is um, compelling. I mean, I suppose coup d'etat um, or civil war or whatever, you've still got somebody basically planning the creation of a of a vacuum into mm. which they can step um i think that what's significant is just how you know if we think that cyber attacks are the next great risk how easily you could create that first that first step could come about now maybe i'm not giving enough credit to kind of our cyber defenses and so on but it does seem quite plausible and that leads us into the um the question about kind of people and whether we think that people are kind of what Amanda thinks they are, because I think that's really at the heart of a lot of this, you know, are people as bad as she thinks they are? I mean, mm. this is a brilliant bit when we first meet her and she's like looking out the window and she's saying, I was watching everybody starting the day and all their kind of like verve and tenacity. And I felt so lucky to be part of the world. And then I remembered what the world is actually like. And I came to a more accurate realisation. I fucking hate people. <laughs> and I'm like very sympathetic of mm. this. But what the, the the big speech that I think we can put in a quote of is the one that Amanda makes to, to Ruth when she's talking about um, like the fact that she works in advertising and advertising is all about um, 
selling things to people by understanding mm. who they are and therefore how you can make them buy something that they don't need or want. Every day, all day, my job, my whole job is to understand people well enough so that I know how to lie to them so I can sell them things they don't really want. And when you study people like that, when you really see the way they treat each other, well, you're no dummy. You see what they do and they do it without even thinking about it. Fuck, I did it to you and your dad and I don't even really know why. We fuck each other over all the time without even realizing it. We fuck every living thing on this planet over and think it'll be fine because we use paper straws and order the free range chicken. And the sick thing is, I think deep down we know we're not fooling anyone. I think we know we're living a lie, an agreed upon mass delusion to help us ignore and keep ignoring how awful we really are. Well, there was a lot to unpack there. Actually, I think it always comes down to a bit of that, like, capitalist individualism, especially yes. when it comes just sort of around the ideas of, like, being out there for yourself and mm -hmm. sort of, like, wanting up the next person, sort of, you know, giving yourself the upper hand over someone else, like, at someone else's expense. Um, and also sort of, like, a bit of more of her commentary around how, you know, people try to alleviate their own guilt around, you know, in, in terms of, you know, the world and sort of its makeup sort of breaking down a bit with the sort of free-range eggs and the paper straws and stuff. And, I mean, again, there's that whole entire narrative um, around climate change, around the, like, carbon, carbon footprint, um, mm -hmm. which was, like, created by big companies anyway to sort of, like, redirect blame onto the individual about their own sort of life habits, mm -hmm. you know, being at, like, sort of at blame for the way that you know yes. our you know climate is developing but it's very it's very cynical worldview but i could probably see like in that sort of like like hyper capitalistic marketing mm -hmm. sort yeah. of atmosphere i can understand like why she views the world in the way that she does but i think especially in this like she's like you know sort of been given this opportunity and situation where she's like brought these strangers into this into her sort of life now the situation going forward and especially like I think getting to know George and like speaking to her, her like him has probably opened her up a bit more to sort of understanding that people can sort of help each other out because I think like funnily enough at the end of the day I think taking George and Ruth into that house that they were staying in was hugely beneficial for their yeah. survival yeah. You know, and it sort of helped them out in the end, and they're sort of helping each other. And I absolutely. I mean, as a speech, it reminds me quite a bit of in years and years that amazing speech by um uh by Anne Reed's character where she yeah. said, "It's uh, it's all your fault." Um, and uh, uh, it, you know, I I don't want to be mm. like Julia Roberts' character here, but I think that what. And I hope that, you know, that that kind of bitterness isn't something that um, has kind of like sunk quite as, as much into my character. But everything about this speech just feels mm. like I really don't want to believe that this is the case in the same way that I don't want to believe that in an apocalypse, 
I hope that more people would be letting George and Ruth in than being like Danny. Um, but I've got a horrible feeling, as you say, that we've built up a culture that really does not prepare us well for stepping into that world of kind of community and and serving one another and diversity yeah. and um, uh, not just, you know, looking out for number one and so on. So, mm-hmm. yeah, there's a, there is a lot that I think about that environmental narrative as well that I think is really, really significant and does fit very nicely into this idea of, of corporate advertising um, mm-hmm. and the way in which that's made her so cynical. And it's interesting because I think I mentioned before this um, fantastic book by John Alexander called um, Citizen and he starts off that book talking about how he left his career in advertising um, to basically um, work with uh, a non-profit and and set that up and so on. And he, uh, you know, these the figures there about like how many times you get bombarded every day with people trying to sell you things. And basically that he, I suppose, went on a similar journey to this character, but it led to him making these big changes in his, mm. his life and the things that matter to him. And you wonder whether there's something of the same kind of arc happening, hopefully. Um, not that, you know, uh, everything now presumably is going to be about survival and so on. But, uh, okay, right. The ending. I don't mind the ending. Mm-hmm. But as you said, lots of people have a problem with it. So to describe the ending for people. Um. So, you know, after all this, uh, you know, George and Clay have gone with Archie to go get him some medical help and uh, Ruth and Amanda have gone to look for Rosie. We eventually find out where Rosie's gotten to um, and sort of the ca- like camera zones in on the this house. I think it's like the thorn sets or something. Yes, it's the house that there's basically backs on to sort of yes. the staying in, isn't it? So yes. Yeah, yeah. Kind of neighbours across the way. Neighbours um, across the way that Danny mentions has this sort of big rich person underground apocalyptic mm-hmm. bunker. Um and we sort of, you know, pan into this house down the corridor and we have this munching. Rosie's there <laughs> enjoying herself, having the best time and she sort of explores the house a little bit finds this bunker goes down there and you know it's all fully equipped um it's all set they've got the bunker like bunk beds they've got you know the tables the kitchen electronics going they're even getting some sort of information through some sort of system we're not sure why the computer works probably no but i suspect that it's to do with the fact that these you know these companies do exist that basically you know set these and presumably um, you know, for the vast amount of money that is paid, it hotlines you into some sort of you know, post-apocalyptic yeah. network that at least gives emergency alerts. And, and yes, so exactly. Uh, and then I think the most important part of the whole movie finds the TV, finds all the box sets. And I think there's a bit of a bit throughout the movie where uh, Rosie, you know, having been a possessed with friends, is fully exasperated with the fact that she can't seem to finish the last episode. That's and right. She finally gets her hands on it. I think it's a pretty clever way to finish off and like kind of leaves it on a bit more of a lighthearted note. I think Archie really does challenge Rosie over like, what is it that you know you like about um about friends or whatever? You know, you really care about their relationships. And um she does uh, say, you know, they make me happy and I really need that right now. If there's any hope left in this fucked up world, I want to at least find out how things turn out for them. I care about them. Which I think for a lot of people watching Friends the first time, you know, 
will Ross and Rachel, you know, finally get back together and stay together and so on? What will happen? Um, you know, that was that was kind of where uh, they they you know how they managed to kind of culminate the show. And again, it, it yeah, it's this thing about I suppose there's an individualism to it in so far as you know she has decided that what is important to her is to meet her particular need, not to sit around being scared and so on, but basically to take herself into hopefully finding some other way, a DVD, um, you know, and you know, they've got a good selection of DVDs to keep them going through an apocalypse, I thought. A bit weird that there's lots of seasons of Buffy, but I didn't see <laughs> the first seasons, so that would be frustrating, as you know. <laughs> Um, there's a positive thing to it, isn't it? I mean, God knows what's happened to these poor people. Presumably they've been bombed in the city and that's that. So there's a sort of a bit of an irony that, you know, you're terribly rich and privileged and you build yourself a bunker. But when the time comes, you don't have the time to get there, which is another thing that is explored in um, uh, this book, um, The Future, this idea that, you know, you can build bunkers as much as you like, but if the apocalypse goes down, how are you going to get a plane that gets you to New Zealand or rural scotland or whatever you know how are you going to get there how would you be able to predict it happening and the basic thing is you know i think as george says well the very rich might get a bit of a heads up but that's that's about as good as it gets um but you're right it has a more light-hearted note we don't know we can't know what's going to happen next but i think that that's not the point of the film the point of the film is not the apocalyptic fallout it's that the tension and the the interpersonal relationships at the moment that things start to disintegrate and of course they are all going to they're all headed to the same place they are you know there's a positive message that you know that hopefully they will be okay and i suppose it's another one of those kind of narratives that basically says in the time of an apocalypse you might think that being really wealthy is what's going to make a difference mm. but of course We've already had the kind of, you know, is is a thousand dollars in cash actually worth anything mm. anymore? Buys you one bottle of medicine, so obviously completely, you know, you know it's a proper free market capitalism, isn't it? Yes, <laughs> supply and demand. Um, <laughs> but you know, what, does money mean anything? We're we just moving to a barter system, and the same thing. You're really rich. You've built a bunker, but is there something morally wrong with somebody else moving into it if you're not there? No, I wouldn't think so. I think it's kind of in this like post-apocalyptic situation, like resources are resources. I think it's kind of fair play. I th- and it's probably the most ethical way to take those things anyway. So would you support looting then? Do you know what? Sure. Sure. I'm going to go out and live here on the podcast. You heard it here first. Everyone for themselves <laughs> in the apocalypse. In the apocalypse. I mean, so it's the thing, isn't it? I mean, I think there is, it's a really interesting one. We've got this, uh, the social contract is basically entirely based on ideas of of property law, right, ultimately. Um, And what we're saying is that in such a situation, we can automatically basically say that property law, obviously, both in a sort of philosophical way and in an actual legal way, more obviously, you know, no longer applies um and it's sort of everyone for themselves to some degree but then you know i think that other people will probably say well the moment you start saying that well it's a bit like you know well i know squatters rights and things like that a whole of other aspect um you know empty property is it anyone's right to you know if we've got a homelessness situation you know is it your right to move into a property um 
with my world say yes it is but um uh you know that's it's certainly not the way that the law stands so yeah i mean there's it's an interesting one i think that you know we're not given an opportunity really to think to, to sort of see the ramifications of that mm. but i suppose if the people are not there they're not using it i would feel that it's absolutely fine but it's I also know people who are very, very keen on the idea of maintaining property kind of ideas at all times. So, okay, the big question. What do you take away from this film? Is there a message? Oh, it's a lot to unpack. I feel like ultimately it sort of reflects a bit more about like probably like the fragility of our sort of modern civilization mm-hmm. and the like reliance on technology because ultimately this dystopia isn't sort of this like you know biological disease that comes along mm. or this sort of big war authoritarian government that's sort mm. of clamping down on people's freedoms it's it's down to the fact that our whole lives sort of orientate around technology mm. um and where that sort of you know that's where the root problem starts appearing yeah and sort of the fear of the unknown and sort of how isolation can lead to exacerbated fear mm-hmm. and you know that I, I'd, I'd say those are sort of like the main takeaways and also like I think the commentary on the racial sort of socio-economic divides yeah say so something also, about if you allow fear to pervade so if you allow fear to pervade and kind of dominate your interactions yeah. with others in society um based on prejudice and, yeah. and based on individualism then ultimately you are worse off for it so yes. you know i think it's not perhaps as clear cut as that because some might say danny's better off but i'm not sure that we're left thinking he is i mean he's yeah. sort of a bit of a sad isolated man <laughs> yes um, you know he, he and his family are sort of confined to their house with holding up guns to everybody who comes you know mm. i don't think it's something we would desire but yeah so i think there's a, a good message there about sort of we might have got ourselves into a state where we really feel that we hate people but actually mm. there's coming back from that um and maybe also in the scenario when confronted with a fuck lot of deer <laughs> <laughs> jumping up and down and shouting at them is apparently a very very effective way yeah. of dissuading them <laughs> so you know when the apocalypse comes and the deer rise up then <laughs> we'll have one small way of dealing with it so really interesting really interesting discussion thank you very much Marsha so I can't remember what we're doing next <laughs> doing so um, I want to say it's downsizing oh yes yeah, so that was your suggestion Yes, I, I, I have literally just seen a clip of this, so maybe we'll watch it and find out it's really bad, but it seemed like it had some good concepts to talk about. I think about. that's all right. So, you know, well, we can do really bad about, like, you know, sort of human rights and stuff. So, you know, it should be a fun one. I think, I think it'll be a good one. Cool. Okay, so downsizing in two weeks after the release of this. So this comes out on the 18th. Yep. Um, and then uh, we will have a newsletter on the 25th. So do subscribe to our Substack. Check that out on our Instagram um, mm-hmm. or go to Substack and find Dystopian Fiction as we move to current affairs. Um, and yes, uh, then it will be into March. So we will be downsizing at the beginning of March on the 3rd. Very exciting times. Mm-hmm. 
check out Instagram for things like book recommendations and updates on what we're doing. That is um, uh, Dystopian Fiction Current Affairs. That's our handle. Um, and if you are imagining what um, life in a survivalist compound might be like, you can go to beingsociety.com and you can um, play our sort of philosophical game of what would you do. Um, <laughs> I think it also applies quite nicely for leave the world behind and what would you do. Yeah. So if you want to let us know what would you do, then please email us, dystopianfictioncurrentaffairs at gmail.com. And uh, you can also donate if you feel so inclined. Uh, there's a coffee link in our Instagram bio. Thank you, everyone, very much for listening. And we will see you soon. <laughs>